Welcome to That Sacral Mm-hmm Podcast, the show where we get intimate with our human designs in order to guide ourselves towards our most pleasurable life and leadership. One of my favorite things and one of the things that make my sacral go mm-hmm is watching leaders like you claim their embodied legacies. From vulnerable shares and learning lessons to expert advice offered through the HD lens, I hope you find something here that you can take along with you on your journey to creating yours. The world needs more leaders dripping in their vitality and serving their mission from the overflow. Your time is now. Welcome to the space, and without further ado, let's jump in. Hey there, before you get into today's episode, I just want to give the disclaimer and the trigger warning that I will be talking about some triggering topics here in this conversation today. So you'll find things about depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, burnout, trauma, working with sexual assault survivors, moving through the medical field, working in the criminal justice system, among other topics. So if any of these things are feeling especially triggering to you today or are not meeting you in the correct space, I want to remind you of your power to meet yourself compassionately and to give yourself the permission to stop and step away from this episode um, as you see fit. As always, when and if you're ready to come back, the information will be there for you. And if we're parting ways on this conversation forever, I want to just give you the um, utmost gratitude from my heart and to express my pride in you for listening to your body. Take a moment right now to check in with your body, to gauge your levels of consent, and if we are parting ways, I will see you next time. If you're ready to listen to this episode, I'll see you on the other side. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, my friends. Your ears are not deceiving you. We do have some background noise coming up. And I'm going to be totally transparent. It is me. I'm on the treadmill right now. Uh, And I'm sure many seasoned podcasters are appalled, (laughs) for lack of a better way of saying it. I know this is a huge no-no that you're supposed to have a quiet space. You're supposed to be sitting still. And you're not supposed to let anything interfere with the audio quality. However... I got into my head about this episode and the enormity of what I have to share and the vulnerability about what I have to share in relation to this topic, which I'm sure you're seeing somewhere either in the title or in the show notes, um, burnout and my journey through burnout and my healing through burnout. And, you know, when I get in my head and when I get trapped into you know, the headspace rather than really feeling things in my body, I oftentimes will find that I need to engage my body in some way in order to jolt back into the experience of, um, you know, the embodiment of what it is that I'm trying to do. So for example, stepping into movement, walking forward, moving through, helps me navigate the, the path towards sharing a story sharing, you know, my experiences, sharing the movement of myself from one reality to another. And so like if I'm on the phone with somebody, I'm typically walking around aimlessly, um, just letting myself kind of explore my environment, utilizing my body, not consciously aware of the things around me, but just in that rhythm of step, 
that allows the words to sort of fall out. And you'll find that, you know, if you were to look behind the scenes, you would see that every post that I do on Instagram, most of the copy that's on my website, you know, different things like that are typically done after a cycle of movement or during a cycle of movement. For me specifically, as a manifesting generator, as someone who has found you know, the delicious outcomes of that practice. So anyways, I'm taking this opportunity to honor my body and give her what it is that she's looking for, even when it doesn't make logical sense. And, you know, similarly, I asked you in the beginning of this episode to check in with your body and to check in with your level of consent for listening to this conversation. And it's when we're able to actually build that trust with our body that says, you know, when you say move, I move. When you say stop, I stop, et cetera, et cetera. That's when we're really able to tap into the fullness of our power. So before we begin, let me take a moment to just celebrate you for listening to your body and celebrate me for listening to mine, honestly. <laughs> okay, so let's get into it. Today's conversation, like I said, we will be talking about burnout. So I've alluded to this in multiple episodes so far of this podcast that I have a history with burnout and really my history with burnout and healing myself from burnout is somewhat of an origin story to how I became a coach, how I found myself entangled in the human design experiment and how I began to stimulate my own self-trust muscle, engaging myself within my embodied leadership and my embodied pleasure and, you know, began to teach other people how they could do the same. Let me just start by saying that I was someone that probably experienced burnout multiple times in my life before. I just didn't have the language to talk about it, or there wasn't enough awareness coming up for me to really identify with it. And I think that this is a big problem when it comes to, you know, and one of the biggest problems when it comes to, um, Things that we experience that are quote unquote unseen um, and things that are, you know, mentally or emotionally based is that when we are not being transparent in how we're feeling to each other or when we are not engaged with our vulnerability or engaged in intimacy in terms of sharing ourselves with one another, it can begin to feel like no one on earth is experiencing the things that we are and that we better just you know keep quiet about it um, because ultimately there's quote unquote something wrong with us but what i found when you know years down the line i began to share myself intimately with others was that many people were going through the exact same thing that i was going through or a variation of what i was going through and you know this is another reason why this conversation is so important for me to have with you, not only so you know who I am and where I've come from, but also so that if you're feeling like any of this is applying to you, that you know that you're not alone, you know that there are people that have come out the other side, and you also know that you have a resource, um, someone to reach out to, to you know, help you in whatever way I can, and I encourage you to do so if that's you. So in the interest of us all being on the same page, I ventured off online to try to find a standardized, accepted definition of what burnout actually is, um, just so that we could all start on the same page. So what I found was a briefing from the World Health Organization, 
um, published in 2019, where they call burnout a quote-unquote occupational phenomenon. And they go on to say that, quote, burnout is a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It is characterized by three dimensions. Number one, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion. Number two, increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job. And three, reduced professional efficacy, unquote. From this definition, we can see that the World Health Organization um, delineates burnout to being something that's exclusive to the workplace or to you know, our relationship to our work. But personally, what I find culturally and you know, at least linguistically in the circles that I'm in and also the things that I read online and how I've seen people talking about burnout is that we're actually using it to describe things you know, in and beyond our workplace. So it doesn't have to just be burnout from the work that you're doing. It can be burnout from any corner of your life um, where you're not engaging with your vitality or engaging with your authenticity and alignment from, you know, human design perspective. My personal burnout journey is multi-layered. I know for a fact that my work and how I engage with my work burned me out in the past. I also know that there were other things that I was doing even outside of work, like being a perfectionist or being a people pleaser or negating my body's boundaries, even when it came to engaging with friends and family, um, that contributed to my burnout as well. My personal burnout journey, I think, was really multi-layered. I think there were many different things that built up upon one another in order to you know, sort of catalyze me into a moment of reckoning within myself that just was like, okay, we've hit 1000% rock bottom and we need to make a change. So it all started on a chilly April morning in 1993. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but honestly, it was, it maybe not from the moment I was born, but contextually within the beginnings of my life, I think I was bred into the type of becoming that would make way for burnout. And let me explain what I mean here. I was born into a family of all girls. I have four sisters and typically the the relatives that were around were women. And so I learned a lot about sacrifice. I learned a lot about resiliency. I learned a lot about putting others' needs before yourself. I learned a lot about negating your body's needs, among many other beautiful things. But these were some of the, the pillars that I began to resonate with um, when it came to being a woman in the world around me. To a certain extent, my purpose was one of self-negation and negating my body's needs in order to move the tides around me in order to keep the wheels turning in order to make sure everybody was okay and that things were okay and so this was part of the reason why when i did step into adulthood and did step into working um you know in a field that i was very passionate about i fell really easily into step with putting the work before my own vitality putting the mission before my health and my safety. 
And honestly, another contributing factor to this was the work ethic that I inherited from my dad, who owned his own business and who I saw throughout my entire life really putting everything else, his business, the financial stability and sustainability of our family, um, his customers, above himself, above his health and well-being. There's this age-old conversation that I think that we've been recycling over and over and over again, um, you know, that comes with questioning and challenging capitalistic structures that asks, are we able to be dedicated without sacrificing ourselves? What I saw around me, whether in like I said, work ethic or the way that you hold up a family was that in order to be truly dedicated to the cause, you had to put yourself in the back seat. You had to put your body in the back seat and allow whatever was in front of you to be more important than whatever was inside of you. So because of this, I had a really toxic relationship with other people and my work in that I prioritized everything above myself. And my fear of being quote-unquote selfish was so deep and um, so ingrained that I would always uh, abandon myself in order to be as quote-unquote selfless as I could. If we fast forward to about 2015 when I began working in the trauma field, we can see that I did not have a great foundation um, for self-reverence and or for self-sustained vitality. These were extremely foreign concepts to me, and I had an inflated sense of self-ability to overcome challenges and to persist in the face of um, mental distress that when people started to begin to talk to me about burnout, vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue in the realm of advocacy and trauma advocacy like I was doing, I sort of like pushed these things to the side thinking that they wouldn't impact me. So anytime someone would talk about self-care, for example, I would really just be like, yeah, yeah, I know that's important. I'll get to it. Or I don't really need to do those things because I'm different. In addition, I grew up in a family where we felt very lucky and privileged for the life that we had. And a symptom of that, if I can say that word, is uh, or was that we felt like we were taking from other people if we expressed how bad things were behind the scenes or we expressed what it was, was that we were truly feeling or we engaged with services. So we, I, I personally, I'll speak in I terms, I had a warped view, view of engaging with services, engaging with conversations about the things that I was struggling with because I thought there's somebody that has it worse than me and I don't have the right to speak about this or there's somebody that has it worse than me and I don't have the right to take these services um, because they need to be available for someone else. So add all of these thoughts and beliefs together and what you have is someone that is just ready and on the verge of combustion or like breakdown without even knowing it. So I entered into the trauma field with really poor coping mechanisms with really poor um, self-relating mechanisms. And because of that uh, and that stubbornness that I did not need help, nor did I quote unquote deserve it, 
um, I began to soak in the trauma around me like a freaking sponge. A few moments ago, I mentioned both compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma and how these things were mentioned to me as being possible things that I could experience as I was navigating working in the trauma field. And I wanted to just give a little bit of information about what those things are, just in case you yourself are experiencing them. So compassion fatigue, and I'll link some resources below. But compassion fatigue is something that you can experience when you serve people or are working with people or are engaging with people who are suffering. And it's a buildup over time that can actually create a resistance or a numbness to feeling empathy for the people that you're working with. So, for example, in the trauma field or working with sexual assault survivors like I was in advocacy, what would happen is we would hear so many stories of trauma or would you know, be touched by so many stories of trauma that eventually we would begin to zone out or begin to numb ourselves to the experience of hearing another person's traumatic recollection um, or recollection rather of you know, their experience. And while this is a coping mechanism from our nervous system to tap out so that we can't experience what we're going to talk about vicarious trauma, it can really impact the way that we view our work and also the way that we do our work, the way that we are actually serving can decline or decrease in the efficacy. Vicarious trauma is also something that you can experience as a caregiver or as a service provider to people who are suffering or going through traumatic experiences. And it's a situation or multiple situations where the work that you're engaging with in terms of, you know, witnessing someone's traumatic experience or hearing the recollection of their traumatic experience can actually be interpreted by your brain as if you yourself are going through the trauma. And uh, this is something that, funnily enough, I actually taught a lot of people about as I was engaging with the criminal justice system and trying to make changes from the outside in. So I worked for a nonprofit and we were um, you know, partnered with different law enforcement agencies, prosecutors' offices, uh, whatever it may be, in order to try to raise awareness and educate about the the traumatic experience, so that better services could be provided to survivors, and so that service providers could know what to expect um, in their line of work, so that they could better serve themselves and make sure that they were okay in order to do their jobs. And I say that's funny because. What's that saying? Like, those who can't do, teach. (laughs) I knew and could teach about the impact of trauma on the brain and the impact of vicarious trauma on the brain. And I knew the symptoms to look out for, and I knew how to prevent it, and I knew how to get help for it. And yet, I was so stubborn in the fact that I did not think that it was impacting me the same way. And I thought that if I did just the bare minimum of caring for myself that I would be able to evade it, which ultimately just was not the case. So in terms of what I was taking on from my clients, what I was listening to, what I was witnessing, the experiences that I had to enter into in order to do that work and in order to um, engage with social justice in that way, I was doing far, far, far too little in order to 
reinforce myself so that I could carry out that work in a safe and healthy way. In addition, I was still living out my lifestyle of people-pleasing and perfectionism, whether that be you know, in the work that I was doing, working way too many long hours on top of what we were asked to do in order to make sure that I could get things done, taking my work home with me, both metaphorically and physically, um, also engaging with my partner in a way that felt really disembodied to me, um, you know, not allowing myself to speak my needs or speak what it is that I needed to be heard on, not being honest about my emotions, not letting my emotions out, um, letting people walk all over me, you know, (laughs) having really unhealthy relationships in my family and with my friends, um, allowing toxicity to enter me, allowing myself to get caught up in bullshit and drama. All of these different things were really contributing to this overabundance of stress in my body. And because of that, I had some really harrowing symptoms that I've mentioned here and there before, but it feels really vulnerable to talk about this here in this way. Um, So I'm just taking a moment to hold myself a little bit here. Okay, so I think the best way to do this is to read to you some of the symptoms of vicarious trauma or the signs of vicarious trauma. Um, I found an article from the British Medical Association, so I will link that below, and I'll share my experience in response to some of these points. So one of the signs of vicarious trauma that they've noted is experiencing lingering feelings of anger, rage, and sadness about a patient's victimization. So this was me to a T. Um, I had a really interesting relationship with anger growing up in that I never allowed myself to really express it. And I never was fully taught how to safely express it. Um, It was something that my mom avoided because she herself had conditioning about around getting angry and also that my dad um, had an interesting relationship with. And, you know, those are their stories to tell and, um, you know, go back to their childhoods. But (laughs) childrenhoods? I don't know how to say that. But basically their individual childhood experience, um, they, you know, formed interesting relationships with anger. And so those things were passed down to us. But I think working in the social justice field, there is so much anger in that field for good reason, because we are upset about the way that the systems have been created and maintained. And we're also upset about, you know, I'll personally speak for myself, upset about the way that we also contribute to these systems. Like for me, I know that I contribute to white supremacy each and every day and that it's really important for me to dismantle that within myself. And I also know that some of the behaviors that I engage with helps contribute to the patriarchy, which is something that I also really want to dismantle. And there's this back and forth between our own culpability and our desire to you know, tear things down all at the same time. So I was really, really angry and really, really sad about these things that were happening and the conversations that I had to have and the laws that were so messed up that were continuing to be upheld and the misunderstandings that were continuously perpetuated and, you know, the the myths around me that were continuously perpetuated, um, in conversations, like, 
you know, misconceptions about sexual assault, misconceptions about trauma, misconceptions about what it means to be a quote-unquote good witness and how that, you know, coincides with the traumatic experience or is challenged by the traumatic experience. And so there was just so much anger bubbling up inside of me that oftentimes took me over the edge. And when I, you know, clocked out for the day, and I could take off that face of perfectionism and take off that face that everything was okay. It was like chipping away at my spirit. On top of that, I just had so much resentment. I really resented um, the people around me, honestly, for not knowing what I was going through, even though I was definitely not sharing with them what I was going through, and even though I definitely would not have accepted any help should they have offered it to me because of my ego, because of how prideful I was, um, and because of my commitment to my own self-abandonment. Um, but ultimately, I resented people not reading my mind, and like I said, just like people not getting it in general. I think one of the hardest things among many very difficult things about being an advocate is that you have to put your feelings aside when you're in front of the client. You have to put your emotions aside when you're in front of the client in order to hold a safe space and in order to, um, like, the thought is to be taken seriously by the community partners in order to, you know, move the needle forward in the way that you, you need to for the survivor that you're working with. Um, but because of that, there was a lot of pushing down feelings, pushing down emotions, pushing down sadness that I was 100% feeling and, you know, putting it away for another time. But I hadn't created a space safe enough for me to release my emotions and for those emotions to be held. Um, you know, for a long time in my advocacy career, I was not in therapy. I was not talking to anybody. Um, and because of that, the emotions just continuously got bottled up inside and the sadness and the anger and the resentment just continued to grow and grow and grow inside of me. Another signal of vicarious trauma noted by this article um, that I myself experienced was the over-identification with the client or this as the patient, but the clients that I was working with and having what they say, quote unquote, um, horror and rescue fantasies. Um, so for me, this manifested in my sexual relationship with my partner. So because I was working with sexual assault survivors and I was working with them as they moved throughout their criminal justice system process, I was present for their um, account of their experience. So when they would go in for their statement, when they would be prepping for trial, when they would go to trial, I was in the room with them every single time they would talk about what happened to them. And this, like I said, began to manifest in my own relationship with my partner in that any time that we were going to get intimate, I began to have, you know, visions or um, experience what I guess would be called flashbacks, but again, wasn't me experiencing them, but flashbacks as if I was the one that experienced those traumatic happenings. This obviously built a big wedge between me and my partner. Um, 
I didn't really feel 100% comfortable to share this with him. I didn't have the language. Sometimes I did share it, um, and he held me as best as he could through that experience. And it was something that I really didn't have any control over when it happened or when it didn't. Um, and so this created a lot of fear of getting intimate, obviously, um, in that way, and created resistance to letting myself be vulnerable in that way with my partner. Even though I knew I was safe with my partner, I knew that my consent and non-consent would be honored. I knew that I, you know, myself did not experience these things, um, especially not with this partner. My brain did not process it in that way, and I, the feelings of unsafety felt so real. And one more signal of vicarious trauma that I'll mention from this list, and I'll link the article below so that you can look through all of them, but one more that I just wanted to share a personal anecdote or story with you is um, the loss of hope, pessimism, and cynicism. So at a certain point, my mental, emotional, and physical symptoms, and I'll talk to you about the physical symptoms I was experiencing, um, got very, very out of hand. And um, eventually I took myself to meet with a therapist and began the work of healing myself and healing my body. And yet I was still working in that field. I was still doing all of the things that I was doing in, you know, like I said, in my day-to-day -day life that were really not in my best interest and not with self-compassion in mind. And so, of course, I was still experiencing a lot of these things even as I was talking to someone about them because I hadn't yet built the muscle memory or built my tool belt of ways to help myself out of that place. So I'll never forget this. I was driving home from, I don't know where, probably my one of my other jobs because at that point I was also working as a fitness instructor at two different studios um, really burning the candle at both ends, um, really pushing my body to extremes, um, not taking care of myself in the way that I needed to, um, like I said, but ultimately, we'll get there. <laughs> um, but I was driving home, and I was in this neighborhood where the houses were very close together, and so it was like house, 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 house as you're passing. Um, I grew up in, in the country, or in a rural area where all the houses are very much so separate from each other. Um, and so I just remember taking note of how close the houses were together and just this, the sheer volume of houses in one area. And I remember thinking very pessimistically, you know, I wonder how many people are getting hurt in those houses. And I remember mentioning this to my therapist, who I'm so grateful for, for all the work that we did together, but for this moment in particular where she realigned me to, you know, the view that I wish to hold now and the view that is healthier for me. And that was, you know, maybe you're thinking how many people in those houses are being hurt or are hurting people, but what if we also thought how many people in those houses are helping people? How many people are actually making a difference and you know what's the probability of that in terms of the volume of houses that you're seeing and the people inside of them i always have been someone that has a more positive and optimistic outlook on life 
And so hearing someone say this to me, something that probably would have been a lot more natural to me before I was so burnt out, before I was so traumatized, and before I completely neglected myself, really shook me awake and made me see how far I had veered from who I am naturally. You know, in human design, I have, which I didn't know at the time, but I have a hope motivation and a possibility view. And um, I have a trajectory into um, theists. So optimism and trusting God, trusting the universe is, you know, something that I'm meant to do. And, you know, now I know that when I'm feeling that way, I've really veered into un- to misalignment and it's a signal for me to reassess and reevaluate how I'm engaging with myself and the world around me. But honestly, I needed someone to point that out to me, and that therapist did that for me. So all of this was going on. (laughs) Um, My responsibilities at my job changed. I began to um, take less cases, um, less clients, but started to work with um, the advocates and training them. Um, Then I began working on a project that dealt with the untested sexual assault kits um, in my area, and from there unlocked so many other stories of forgotten people, forgotten stories of survivorship that were never taken seriously and that the system completely failed. And, uh, you know, all the while, like I said, I was working overworking in that job. I was overworking in, you know, in order for that job, I was overworking not only to reach quote-unquote success um, in my field, but also because I felt the tragedy of the complete failure that the system had for these people and the impact that it surely created in their lives. And so I wanted to lesson that experience as much as I could and I took on a lot of responsibility with that in my own mind. I also was working two other jobs like I had said and I was um, a fitness instructor and I was not resting. Um, I was pushing my body even when um, it was communicating to me that it was past its limits. Um, I was people pleasing in many other areas of my life not saying no because I didn't want to hurt people's feelings or not letting people know that I needed to rest or that I needed something from them, Um, not communicating, not sharing what was going on with me like I've mentioned before. And wrap this all together with a intricate, societally, societally programmed bow of hating my body and doing everything that I could to try to change it. So dieting, over-exercising, exercising on top of the exercise classes that I was teaching, the fitness classes that I was teaching. Um, and, you know, I guess in summation, my whole life was off-kilter and unbalanced. And so this manifested in an unbalance, a severe unbalance, of, or imbalance rather, of my hormones. I began to experience extreme pain um, around my cycles, extreme pain during sex, vaginal dryness, um, severe hormonal acne that was very painful, 
um, mental fatigue, physical fatigue, um, emotional distress. So I experienced anxiety, panic attacks, um, depression. I had um, suicidal thoughts. Um, never made a plan, but oftentimes would think how nice it would be just to go to sleep and not have to wake up. Um, and yeah, there was a lot going on physically that was painful. You know, if I could just summarize it in one word, painful was the word. Um, and so my body was shutting down. It was deteriorating as I was not taking care of myself. And I've mentioned before on, you know, my sub stack, I think in one of my blog posts, how I had this epiphany at one point where, you know, I'd woken up another day just completely depressed and having a hard time even getting out of bed. And I just heard this voice inside that said, like, this cannot be it. This cannot be my life. There has to be something else. There has to be something different that I can do. Um, and it has to stop today because I can't go on another day like this. And uh, I don't know how that happened. I don't know whose voice that was. I don't know why it was that day. But that was really the beginning of the end in, in, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, it was the beginning of everything for me was having that moment where I hit rock bottom in order to really reflect and say, I need to do something different. For so much of my life, I was waiting for someone else to come and save me, waiting for someone to notice that I was drowning and to throw a life raft out to me. But ultimately, like I said, I was asking people to read my mind and I wasn't willing to save myself. It's like when you're treading water and you feel like you're drowning and all of a sudden you realize that you can stand up. There was a lot of things that I was not doing um, and not putting the, the effort forward in order to help myself that I could have been doing. And, you know, this is not to blame myself completely, but I do see a lot of responsibility um, for getting myself into some of these situations uh, and for feeling this way for so long without asking for help. But that moment was really a catalyst for everything having to be overhauled in my life. So the way that I related to other people, I had to take that and, you know, go over it with a fine-tooth comb in order to really reconcile the way that I was relating to other people, the way that I was allowing myself to be treated, the way that I was treating others and deprioritizing myself and my lack of availability and ability to communicate what it is that I needed without feeling like a burden. It also was a catalyst for realizing that I was pushing myself so far into what I now know is my not-self theme of frustration and, you know, ignoring all of my body's warning signals. I did that for so long that, and was constantly in that space for so long that it makes sense that my body began to revolt against me. It makes sense that sensation, other than pain, really fell offline and pain was the only thing that I could experience. Another thing I came to realize at that time was that my relationship with my partner as it was, was not serving either of us in the way that we were committed to it. 
in the ways that we were communicating, in the ways that we were meeting each other, we were not serving one another and we were not serving ourselves. And uh, it was a catalyst for taking a deeper look into the partnership that we wanted to have and the partnership that we needed to have in order for both of us to feel safe, seen, and heard. And finally, among other things, this was an, a catalyst for me to really reflect on the self-care that I was engaging with and to get honest with myself about the efficacy of my efforts. Um, were these things things that I was just doing to say that I had done them, to check them off a list, or were they things that I was actually deeply feeling were needed in my body and you know, were things that I was actually like getting into the trenches with myself in order to facilitate deep healing. So basically from head to toe, from top to bottom, I had to overhaul many things in my life, many of the ways that I was doing things in order to reassess and re-engage with my authenticity and what would authentically serve me um, in all areas of my life. Step one of this journey for me was getting involved with a therapist. And I think personally, this was a natural first step. And I know that for many people, it's not the natural first step. And so, um, you know, take my experience with a grain of salt and allow yourself to explore, again, your body's level of consent or um, even intrigue into different healing modalities. But at my job, you know, I was working side by side and in tandem with a lot of trauma therapists. And so, you know, being around therapy conversations was a lot more natural to me in those years of my life than maybe, you know, in my childhood where no one really in my family um, talked about therapy or talked about if they were in therapy or what they were doing in therapy. And also, you know, none of my friends at that time, I believe, you know, when I was younger, um, were talking about being in therapy. And so, you know, in my adult life, I was very lucky that professionally therapy was a lot more common um, in the field that I was in. It was just a little bit less so common about the advocates actually engaging with it for a long, sustained period of time. So I began the process there with trying to find a therapist that would actually work for me. I've talked about on this podcast before how for a sacral being, the sacral process, the response process is kind of like taking the next best step forward for you and then having another step appear in front of you or having like a lily pad appear in front of you inviting you to take that next step and your job is just to say yes or no if it's for you and take the step if it feels right and that is exactly what happened in my process so once I engaged with a therapist and began to feel the impact of having a safe space to share myself and feeling the effects of making minute changes with self-care and, you know, with vulnerability and sharing myself with the people around me, I began to get, continue to get intrigued by what was going on physically within my body. Uh, at that point, my sister was going through her own things with her hormones, and she was telling me a lot about, you know, what was going on and was kind of hypothesizing with me you know, maybe it's a hormonal imbalance. Maybe it's something that you should check in on because of the symptoms that I was experiencing. So from there, I began to get curious and intrigued about health, hormones, nutrition, um, you know, just really researching a lot about my body as a woman that I never was taught and I never taught myself. Um, 
really, you know, making it okay to not know the answer to a question about my own body and uh, allowing myself to do the research to find the answers. And because of this, I found a lot of information that I really resonated with about um, syncing to your menstrual cycle, about um, naturally uh, supplementing what your what stage of your cycle you're in with food, with rest, with activity, with uh, exercises, whatever it may be. Um, and from there, began to read different conversations about birth control and the impacts of birth control. And ultimately, I decided that I did not want to be on birth control anymore. Um, I felt that this was a contributing factor to what I was going through in addition to the environmental factors that I was taking in, um, like I said, with work, with my relationships, you know, on all areas of my life. I felt like this was another area where um, I was not serving myself in the way that I needed to be um, by being on this, this pill. And this is my personal experience. This is my personal relationship to birth control. Just want to give that disclaimer that you have right and you have you have the right and you have sovereignty to make the decision for yourself about how you want to um, prevent pregnancy, how you want to take care of yourself, um, and you know take ownership over your own body. Um, so this is not to you know, push that down your throat. But for me, my personal experience and my personal relationship with the information that I was engaging with and, and in addition to how I was feeling um, on the pill and some of the other things that I was, like, historically experiencing being put on the pill from a very young age um, and then going off of it at a certain point and then going back on it when um, I became sexually active um, all of these things contributed to the decision to not want to be on hormonal birth control. So because of that, I decided to go to um, my gynecologist and have a conversation with her about the symptoms that I was experiencing. And I think it's really important to note that I was really frightened to share every single thing I was experiencing, and I had not shared everything with anybody. So even my therapist, who probably got the most information out of me in terms of the gravity of what I was experiencing, still did not have the whole picture. I was really afraid of the judgment that I would get from others. I was afraid that they would say that something was wrong with me mentally, or that I was making it up, or um, that what I was experiencing, even if it was real, wasn't normal, um, that it was my fault. Uh, among many other things, I just was really afraid um, to share that part of myself with someone else, even if they were a professional. And so I walked in to that appointment with a full list of symptoms and the <laughs> shaking energy of, I'm going to share this even if it kills me. I have to tell someone about this. Um, and, and, uh, I had the resolve that I was going to do that. So like I said, I go into my appointment ready to go. I have this list. I've written it all out. I have practiced how I'm going to say it. And I go to say everything that's on my list. And the doctor says, I don't need to hear any of that. I don't need to hear those symptoms. 
and it was like a knife went through my heart. Uh, all that preparation that I had done, all those feelings that I wasn't going to be taken seriously or that I would be made to feel like something was wrong with me had come true. Um, and it was a big moment for me because in that moment I had to decide to choose myself and to advocate for myself, which was something that I was so accustomed to and ready to do for other people. I had made a career out of it, but I would never ever do for myself for fear of making someone feel uncomfortable or for fear of being wrong or for fear of, you know, taking from someone else, for example. And so in that moment, I stood up and I let her know that that wasn't okay. I shared with her what I wanted to do, which was to get off birth control. And even when she said, I don't think that's a good idea, let's just switch and see what happens. Or even when she said something kind of offhanded to me about therapy and uh, my need for more of it, basically, uh, I basically just stood up and just told her that that could be her opinion, but for me, that wasn't actually what was best and that I was going to have to say no um, and that I wouldn't be coming to see her anymore. Unfortunately, I know that I'm not the only one that has had that experience um, with this particular topic. And so if you are someone that has experienced that or someone that is looking to have that conversation but is afraid, I just want you to know that you're not alone. I just want you to know that there are so many people out there who are cheering you on and who are, you know, looking back from whatever stage of their process they're in and relating to you in this moment that you're in. And I want you to know that I'm here should you ever need to talk to someone about this or need resources. Um, so please do not hesitate to reach out. But like I said, there's always another lily pad or another step forward that appears. And because of this moment of empowerment, I, you know, and, I, and I'm proud of myself because I really took the time to congratulate myself for doing that. Um, even though it was so out of character, it was really a signal to me that I was willing to change, that I was willing to do things differently in order to um, help myself and to get back to health and safety within myself. So uh, I remember sharing that with my therapist and receiving so much love back from her and such a beautiful uh, space holding from her that really encouraged me. And she also was the first to mention the availability of different healing modalities that I could engage with should I have the desire to. So she actually mentioned offhand, you know, there's an acupuncturist that is across the street from here. There's a naturopath down the road. You could also try a new uh, doctor at a different practice if that feels good for you, um, you know, whatever it may be. And from there, I just sort of set out on an experimentation process for um, engaging with different healing modalities and also finding practitioners who would take me seriously or who would make me feel um, safe, seen, and heard. And so before the pandemic began in um, 2020, uh, that was my biggest focus was to get set up with practitioners who would meet me in those ways. I started with an acupuncturist and honestly the way that she 
met me in that space and made space for me to speak what was going on for me, made me feel safe, made me feel heard, made me feel like there was a light at the end of the tunnel. And that encouraged me to find medical practitioner, practitioners, you know, within the medical field, um, you know, outside of naturopathic remedies that actually did the same for me too. So my approach to my hormonal imbalance was a combination of both traditional medicine and functional medicine. And again, this is my own personal experience. I'm not giving you any medical advice. I can't do that here, nor would I want to because your experience has to be unique to you. But I just want to share that for me, it was a combination that actually helped me. And that's really the theme with the entirety of my healing process. It had to be a combination. It wasn't just one thing that was contributing to the burnout. It had to be, it was multiple things. And so the healing process had to be multiple things. So in addition to, you know, getting my hormones back on track and meeting with medical practitioners who could help me with that, I had to continue with my therapy. I had to continue with self-care and actually getting down to the root of the issues by, you know, engaging with activities that would make me feel, um, make me feel better actually, and not just kind of mask the symptoms. In addition, I had to really come to uh, recognition for the way that my work was impacting me, and I had to start the process of disengaging myself from the toxic patterns that I had cultivated um, as an employee. So this started with, you know, recognizing the way that I was engaging with my work and how I was bringing it home and setting firmer boundaries on that. Setting firmer boundaries on the hours that I was keeping, setting firmer boundaries on bringing my phone home and keeping it on. At that time it was 2020, so setting boundaries with where I was doing my work in my home and the practices I would have to disengage myself from work at the end of the day and, you know, cleanse myself or connect to the next stage of my night um, ritualistically, um, you know, by creating space for uh, kind of like a turnover uh, or like changing of the guard, sort of. I don't know why that's the metaphor that's coming forward, but basically like transitioning from work to life and work to home and doing so in a specific way. Also changing the way that I related to how other people saw me and how I felt that impacted my success. Um, and ultimately changing my relationship to success in and of itself. One of the things that the pandemic brought for me, as I know many people felt the same thing, is that it encouraged a reassessment of my values and a reassessment of, you know, my life. And uh, because of that, I had more availability to think on things and to come to conclusions about the things that I was doing. And create the space to make habits and, and changes uh, that would help me transition into a new way of life, hopefully, after the pandemic was over, um, as we all were like hypothesizing when that would be. Also, the pandemic gave me a little bit of an out with my uh, fitness uh, jobs. While I loved my fitness jobs, I was not 
in the right space to be engaging with that line of work anymore. And, you know, like I said, the volume of work that I was doing um, just in general in my life. And uh, when things transitioned to online, I was able to, you know, communicate my needs and uh, release myself from those jobs and, and ultimately quit those jobs um, to better serve myself. And so I'm really grateful for the, uh, the owners of each of those studios that I worked for, for giving me the space to do that, because ultimately that was one of those moments where, um, again, big catalyst for who I would end up becoming later on. Later on down the line, you know, because I had felt what it was like to quit something um, and to say no, and the fact that I didn't die, I think it became a lot easier to envision myself actually quitting my nine to five. Um, you know, I had done as much as I could to re-engage with the work in a more healthful way. However, um, I could still see the toll that it was taking on me and taking on my, you know, romantic relationship, my um, non-romantic relationships, and my view of myself. And uh, ultimately, I began to feel my passion start to wane for the way that I was engaging with advocacy. So not passion, you know, lessening for advocacy itself, but ultimately just the way that I was engaging with it. And that is another symptom of burnout, you know, that's noted is that distance that's being created or that mental distance from one's work um, or feelings of the disengagement. I really began to feel those things and began to daydream about a job where I could help people and utilize the skills that I had, but could also do so in an environment that was ultimately much safer for me and was much more sustainable and easy to maintain. And obviously this didn't come without challenges. Um, I will not so humbly brag that I felt that I was very good at my job. Um, and I did a very good job in advocacy. And I had a lot of things planned out before me. So I knew what my next stage was. I knew um, where I was headed next, what role I wanted to be in. I knew you know, where I would eventually go later on. I knew what I needed to do to get there. Everything was pretty much laid out step by step in front of me and I just needed to stay committed and I would get myself there eventually, hopefully. But as I began to fantasize about a life outside of advocacy, um, outside of legal advocacy, I began to feel the insecurity from releasing kind of like a step-by-step step or a sure thing in my eyes, like something that I knew what the outcome could be if I kept going. I didn't know about my human design at that point, but I definitely went on an emotional wave when it came to quitting, when it came to releasing myself from that job. Um, I went back and forth, back and forth around it so many times. Um, at that point, I was really in my mind about decisions, like I said, I didn't know that my emotions were teaching me something, but ultimately I did feel that clarity. And I would say, you know, like I said, 
I felt a lot of pain, and those were typically the sensations that I was feeling. But at a certain point, I began to feel the clarity in my body, you know, in my, right above my belly, kind of where my ribs are. I felt this calm sensation of clarity, and it will always stick with me because, again, I wasn't feeling many sensations other than pain. This was like the first instance where I felt a sensation in my body that I could trust. And I didn't know why I could trust it, but again, I heard that voice telling me that I could. And I knew that I needed to quit in order to do something different for myself. So after many, many, many tears, lots of fear, uh, and many other emotions, I ended up quitting my job in advocacy and began the process and the journey of creating my own business. Um, I had already started the process um, about a month or so prior to when I put in my notice, but um, you know, the clarity sensation was the sign to go full time, even though it didn't quite make sense in my body. And I've shared before, I don't know if I would suggest that, honestly. It's not as easy as, okay, I made the decision, now everything falls into place. I had a big uh, nervous system activation after that decision um, when I was on my own. <laughs> but also, I, was, I felt like I was backed into a corner. I felt like there was danger on both sides. If I stayed, I was in danger because I was not healthy. And if I left, I would technically be in danger because I didn't have the stability. So I basically just had to jump and hope that I would be okay. Um, honestly, it took a lot of reading self-help novels. It took a lot of um, talking to the people in my life that are a little bit more daredevilish. It took a lot of, you know, anchoring myself into uh, my own self-worth and why I was worthy of taking this chance. And ultimately, I'm so, so, so grateful for that past version of me that did because here I am today having this conversation with you. But I regret to admit, unfortunately, my burnout did not go away um, when I left that job. It didn't go away when I started therapy. It didn't go away when I got off birth control. It didn't go away completely. It was a process that was still ongoing. Um, and honestly, it just started to take a new form uh, when I got into my business at first. I began to reiterate the ways of working that I had witnessed and that I had engaged with in my life before that time and began to transplant those systems into my new baby business, uh, recreating what I'd seen and what I'd experienced in the past. So the beginning stages of my business were hustle, 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 um, you know, try to maintain your boundaries, but if you can't always, that's okay. They were, um, you know, you're not doing enough thoughts coming up. Uh, many different things were coming up that were, like I said, just a recreation of the past. And I still felt this truly deep disconnect from my head to my body. I did not feel like they were connected. And I did not feel sensation. Um, like I said, pain 
was the main sensation that I had felt in the past. And then I felt that sensation of clarity. And then from that time, um, you know, as my symptoms began to subside and the pain started to lessen until ultimately it went away, um, it was kind of like nothing was coming online. (laughs) Like I could recall the feeling of clarity, but other than that, Uh, it really felt like my body was just numb and there were no signals coming from my body to my brain. There was no awareness of what my body was trying to tell me. And as I've shared in a previous episode, one thing led to another. Another lily pad appeared and human design came into my life and began to give me the language to um, relate to my body in a new way and began to give me the permission to find my own unique how of running my business and engaging with my life in a way that maintained my authenticity and maintained and you know created my vitality within myself. The most important things that I learned on my burnout to healing journey um, are as follows. Number one, you are not alone even when you think you are. I can't tell you how many times I shared what was going on with me after I found the permission and felt the safety to do so, um, where people opened up to me with such depth uh, about what it is that they were experiencing too and how they could relate to what I was going through. This really began this system of transparency and integrity for me that I still hold on to this day um, in sharing my work of why I know that it's so important to be vulnerable and transparent with the people around you so that they can one see themselves in your process and in your journey and two so that they can hold the fullness of you and your authenticity. Number two I learned that you have to inquire within yourself what it is that you need, and then build the courage to ask for it. I was so keen on, and hell-bent really, on not telling people what it is that they could do for me or not accepting help because I didn't want to seem weak or I felt that they should just be able to read my mind. And it wasn't until I got the courage and had the language to share with someone what it was that I needed that I actually was met in my needs. And it sounds so simple, but really it takes skill and it takes practice to be able to do that. Number three, I learned that trust between you and your body is something that has to be earned. That if your body is communicating to you and you're not listening, eventually the body begins to distrust you. And ultimately that could contribute to the symptoms that you're experiencing and or the absence of sensation that you may begin to feel. And so it's so important to foster a relationship of trust with your body and to put in the effort for your body to trust you. Which brings me to my next point, which is that your body's consent is sacred and that your body's yes and no needs to be respected. This is something that, you know, intellectually and even professionally, I had a very firm grasp on Um, you know, whether it came to sexual consent or non-sexual consent. And yet I was still crossing my body's boundaries 
and not listening to my body's yes or my body's no um, when it really mattered. And number five, you are worthy of your own care. You are worthy of your own compassion. You are worthy of receiving support. You are worthy of being heard. You are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. And your mission is only going to benefit. The people around you are only going to benefit if you make sure that you are okay and if you pour into yourself first. I'm really excited to one day share with you soon about my business now, about my work now, about my life now. And I know that I've shared in bits and pieces and have, you know, you probably know a lot more about me <laughs> uh, based on, you know, what I shared online, but I'm really excited to be able to continue through these episodes to show you the changes that I've made within myself and within my relationship to my work, within my, you know, relationship to my partner, within my relationship to how I engage with other people, uh, with achievement, you know, you name it. I'm really excited to continue to share these conversations of empowerment around where you get to be when you prioritize your self-care, where you get to be when you prioritize your own vitality, and where you get to be when you're honest with yourself about what it is that's contributing to your burnout and what you can do to help yourself out of it, even if that means getting help from other people like I did. So again, if you're someone that's experiencing burnout and is feeling like you're alone, you're not. I've been there too, and I'm on the other side letting you know that it's possible for you to get yourself back to a place of vitality. Um, I'm cheering you on. I hope you know how important you are. I hope you know how important your story and your message are. And I just hope that you feel within this episode that you've been seen or heard or that you could relate in some way and that it's inspired you to go on your own journey of healing and your own experiment of healing to find your way back to yours. As always, I thank you for giving me the space to have this conversation with you. I thank you for holding me in my own vulnerability here in the shares that I've processed with you here in this episode. I appreciate your uh, allowing of me to be on this treadmill, and I'm sure that there were points in this thing where I, I definitely felt like I got out of breath a little bit, which is kind of sad because I'm not moving that fast, <laughs> but uh, I just really appreciate you holding space for my process. I don't think there's any other way that I could have done this this episode in this way, and I'm really proud of what came out. So. I appreciate you being here to listen and going through the journey with me. I will see you again soon for another episode of That Sacral Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, if there's anything you need, please do not be a stranger and feel free to reach out. All right, I'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye.